0: centuries of Western art has depicted biblical characters as white European. And you can kind of see why. I mean, it started with the Renaissance, when you're going to paint a painting of biblical characters, the the people that you see are your inspiration for what people look like. But it's unfortunate because there would be no white biblical characters in any of the true stories. And it's true also that not so long ago, the, those who identified, many of those who identified as Christian, were the, some of the cruelest, most uh, ungodly racists in history. And so we have this weird thing where, understandably so, people, when they think of Christianity, the image that comes to their mind is white culture, uh, a white religion. Just because the pictures they've seen, the picture of Jesus that we've all grown up with, uh, some of the common pictures of Jesus look more like Brad Pitt than what he would have looked like in, in reality. And it just sort of has painted this really super unfortunate image. But the reality of history and the reality of global statistics and the reality especially of the Bible paint a really different picture. And we're gonna see that today when we look at this really unique story, unique for a lot of reasons I'll get into in a minute, this story in at the end of Acts chapter eight. If we stop and notice some things, some of the things to notice, I think, are pretty amazing. So let's just start reading the story. In verse 26, Luke says, an angel, that's a supernatural thing, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Philip is one of the seven. He's somebody who's been gifted to speak to Greek Uh, culture, and he's doing a really, he's been also gifted to share the gospel with other people, as we'll see. The spirit of the angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, You may have heard Gaza because it's currently what most people are talking about right now this week in the news. This is the one passage in the New Testament that talks about Gaza. It was a real place. You can tell we're talking about an ancient geography here. In fact, let's just take a look at a map. Uh, This is Jerusalem, and this is the city of Gaza. This is the Gaza Strip, and so the angel is telling Joseph, Telling Philip, uh, the angel, get my biblical characters confused. The angel's telling Philip to go on a road that's going this way toward Gaza. And, you know, we can't really talk about Gaza without just, I think, stopping for a moment as a church to pray for what's happening right now. So, will you just pray with me? Let me pray, and you can pray with me. God, you are a God of justice and peace, and you are a God of grace and mercy. And you are a God who wants to restrain evil. I pray, we pray, that you would restrain evil, hold back evil, especially in this region right now of the world, this Gaza Strip and this area, that you would hold back evil, that you would pour out your grace and your mercy on those who have lost loved ones and who will lose loved ones, and that you would bring wisdom and clarity of thought to all those decision makers who influence a lot of decisions and a lot of people. We pray for your grace in this, in Jesus' name, amen. Mentioning Gaza, though, does tell us this is a a real story in a real place. And the angel is sending Philip to go on a special mission. Let's find out what that mission is. The next verse says, so he started out... And on his way to Gaza, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. She was actually the queen mother, the king's mother, had a position of power. She actually did official functions on, the, on behalf of the king. And this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. And on his way home from Jerusalem, back to where he, to Ethiopia, on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. So Luke has told us a lot, and, and we should catch some of these things. Luke says he's an Ethiopian. Now, that's not the same country that we call Ethiopia now. They called another country Ethiopia back at the time that this was written, back in the first century, and it was the, what we, the Nubian Empire, it, what the Old Testament calls Cush. It's an empire that was south in Africa, south of what we call what's known as Egypt now, the the country of Egypt. And so this this person here would have been a black African. And it says that he is a eunuch. A eunuch is a a castrated male. And the reason why he's been castrated is because he's an important important official in charge of the treasury of the queen. (laughs) And so when you are involved in the royal family, back in those days it was very common that if you were somebody high up in the, the court, the royal court, and you had a lot of proximity to the royal family, if you were a male, you had to be castrated because you know, they don't want anybody doing shenanigans in the royal family and ruining the royal line and so this man is castrated because he has an important official position of being in charge of the treasury of the queen mother and somehow because he has means he has resources he's able to take a chariot to jerusalem so he goes on a thousand mile journey from nubia to jerusalem it's a thousand mile journey it would have been dangerous it would have been not easy but he has a chariot which is better than most and he's on his way home and he seems to have acquired a scroll of the book of Isaiah. That's not a common thing for people to have their own scroll. Back in those days, they didn't have their own Bibles. And, and the Bible was really hard to have. It was on these scrolls, and the different books were different scrolls. Somehow, in his journey to Jerusalem, he is somebody who is a Gentile who is a, what's called a God-fearer. He goes to Jerusalem because he's been attracted to the worship of Yahweh, the Hebrew Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew God. And so he goes to Jerusalem on kind of a religious pilgrimage, and part of his trip to Jerusalem he has acquired a copy, a scroll of Isaiah, and so you know he's going home with his new scroll, and he's reading his new scroll of Isaiah on his way home. It's a new thing he has, and so he's reading through it, and so... That's when he, well, let's just go ahead and, and, and catch it. it. says, the Spirit told Philip, so this is God telling Philip first through an angel, go on your way to Gaza, and then I'll tell you what to do when you get there. Now he's th- there, and the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot over there and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. He heard him because people back in those days read out loud. They didn't read silently. So Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading, Philip said. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip up to this chariot, invited him up uh, to sit with him. It goes on. This is the passage of scripture that eunuch was reading, Luke tells us. and he's, Now this is Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was led, talking about Jesus, this is written 700 years before Jesus, but it's talking about the death, the death, the trial of Jesus at his crucifixion. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And it goes on. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage, Isaiah 53, with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Now here's what's interesting, is that the the eunuch would have found out when he went to the temple that he wasn't allowed in the temple because he's been castrated. It's a law in, in the Old Testament, and for some reason uh, he would find out, okay, I can't go in the temple. And so now, after hearing this, it's weird the way he says it. He goes, what would prevent me from being baptized? In other words, am I allowed in this temple? What would prevent me from being baptized? And Philip said nothing. And so he, he baptizes him. He becomes a follower of Jesus. He believes the good news of Jesus, and then it end, the story ends with a really weird, Luke says, that the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and he took him somewhere else. Now what does that tell you? It tells you that Philip had one mission. This whole thing was one mission given to him by Jesus. An angel tells him, the spirit tells him, and then the done, the spirit takes him away. What is the done, what is the mission? To reach one mission. Black African with the good news of Jesus. Aside from the Apostle Paul, it's the only story like this in the entire book of Acts where Jesus is going after one man. And we hear the story of how he's going to reach one man with the good news of Jesus. And it's this black African from Nubia. And he goes back, a follower of Jesus. Here's... Here, here's, here's you gotta think about how this happened. You have, you have, obviously Philip is doing his thing where he's been led by the spirit and the spirit says, go on this road and then when the chariot passes by, he says, go to that chariot. So he's getting specific instructions. But for the, for the Ethiopian, He's just making free will decisions. He's just going on. Something prompted him to go to Jerusalem. He arranges to go to Jerusalem at the time right now here when Philip is is, is having to leave Jerusalem, and he's going there at that time. He's on his way back. Somehow he has the, the... the ability to get a scroll of Isaiah. He's reading a scroll of Isaiah on his way back. He's passing at just the right time and he's reading the one passage in the entire Old Testament that most describes the crucifixion of Jesus. It actually describes it better than any passage in the entire Bible, even though it's written 700 years prior. That's the passage that he's reading. And so it's an amazing thing that that, at that very moment, God is going to send somebody to reach him. He's prepared him with this passage and he's going to bring this black African into the kingdom of God and send him back to Nubia as a follower of Jesus in the royal court because Jesus wants to reach those people there. There's a lot of things we can talk about from this passage. We can talk about, oh, I could do a sermon on, Are you sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit? If the Spirit would prompt you to talk to somebody and God has prepared them to hear the gospel, you don't know how he's prepared them, but he's prepared them, and God has nudged you, God has prompted you to talk to them, are you able to listen to the leading of the Holy Spirit? Would you do that? Or or we could do a sermon on, you know, like this Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, The Bible's not always clear. There are a lot of places in the Bible that are hard to understand. And, and do you have teachers in your life that are able to help explain parts of the Bible to you so that you can have the Bible opened up to you and enter a whole bigger world of God's kingdom and God's truth? Is that Do you have that in your life enough? I could do a sermon on that. I'm not gonna do a sermon on any of those things because I think I wanna do a sermon on what I think is a big reality from this passage. And that is Christianity, biblical Christianity does not belong... To any single culture or any single ethnic group more than any other. This is really true. This is really a big thing to get that there is no Christian culture on this earth. There is no Christian ethnic group on this earth. That it doesn't belong to any culture or any ethnic group more than any other. We see that from the very earliest stories in the book of Acts, and and we see it in just the way things are in the world now. So, for example, Every other religion in the world, pretty much when you look at the the large population centers that, that adhere to that religion, they are roughly in the same region where that religion started thousands of years ago. For example, Muslims, roughly the majority of Muslims, with the exception of also some in Southeast Asia, but the majority of Muslims live pretty much where Islam started, in North Africa and the Middle East. That's still the major area on the planet, with again, Southeast Asia, where those who, where it originated 2000 or 700 AD, where it originated 1400 years ago, 1300 years ago. Well, 600 AD, 1400 years ago. I don't know if my math is right, but you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Uh, Those who believe in Islam, I mean, Hinduism. Uh, It started thousands of years ago in India, and the majority of people that today believe in Hinduism live in India and South Asia. Uh, Those who believe in Buddhism, pretty much the majority of people still live in East Asia where it began thousands of years ago. Christianity is the one exception. Christianity is the most multi-ethnic, multicultural movement in human history. Really, really. Uh, the Pew, Pew Foundation did a study a few years ago where they actually looked at all this stuff, and they found that, that when you look at the, where all the Christians live on the planet, about evenly they're split. So about the same number of Christians live in, uh, those who identify as Christians live in Europe, that live in North America, that live in South America, that live in Africa, the least amount live in Asia, but that's the fastest growing demographic, and they say that the number of Christians in China, for example, will outnumber the number of Christians in the U.S. by 2030. That's how fast it's growing. So here's the thing, that two-thirds of the professing Christians on the planet are not white. Which, for those who say that, that Christianity is a, mainly a white religion, They're just not factual when it comes to, they're not seeing the majority of people who are Christians who are not white. They're not seeing the millions of black Africans who identify as Christians that outnumber the number of Christians in America. They're not seeing the black American who is 10% more likely to identify as a Christian than their white peers. They're not seeing what has been said. If you want to bring it down to what is the average, typical Christian, it's the black woman. More than any other category of human, the black woman is more likely to be a Christian than anyone else. So, So the law professor, Stephen L. Carter, Harvard law professor, he wrote this because of that. He wrote, when you mock Christians, you're not mocking who you think you are because the majority of Christians are either black or brown. So so when, when people claim that Christianity is mostly a white religion, not only is that just historically false, and not only is it just globally, statistically really false, but it's also biblically very false, especially biblically false. Now, most of you know this, but not one single biblical character is white. Not one single biblical author was white. But here's here's something I think that is really interesting that maybe you may not know, maybe you may not realize, but when you think of God building the kingdom of God that began with with the Israelites, it actually began when he called Abraham and he promised Abraham, look, come to this place. I'm gonna make a promise to you. And he, and, and he repeated this promise, a promise that, like, for example, specifically stated in, in Genesis 22:18. 18. And he says this to Abraham. He says, through your offspring, that's a singular person, ended up being Jesus, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So just catch this. 4,000 years ago, in 2000 BC, when God calls Abraham, and when that passage in Genesis was written, centuries before Jesus was born, that passage is saying, look, this is going to end up being something where all nations on earth are going to be part of it. They're going to be blessed through this one singular offspring. Now, the chances of that being prophesied and happening like it is in the world today, I think the odds of that, well, it happened. Maybe it's not impossible. But it's kind of amazing. But in that singular promise to Abraham, that singular promise that is the gospel, through your seed, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, that's repeated throughout Genesis. And then Abraham has a grandson named Jacob. And God changes Jacob's name to Israel. So Jacob is the first Israelite. He's Israel. All his descendants are Israelites. And what's interesting is that all his sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, but, but two of them weren't actually his sons. One of his sons, Joseph, spent most of his life in Africa, and he married an African woman, and they had two sons named Ephraim and Manasseh. And Ephraim and Manasseh, later in life, jo- Jacob said to Joseph, they're going to be as my sons, and they became two of the 12 tribes of Israel. They actually became two of the biggest 12 tribes of Israel. Ephraim and Manasseh are half African. They have African blood as much as they have Middle Eastern blood. No white blood. And, and, and so th- when you look at the 12 tribes of Israel, one-sixth of the people of Israel have African blood. They're half African, one-sixth. And then when when Moses delivers, God uses Moses to deliver the Israelites out of their bondage in Egypt, and this becomes this, not just the story of how the nation of Israel started, but it becomes this living metaphor all through the Bible of ultimately the deliverance is going to be the kingdom of God through Christ. But when it says, it's really interesting, when it says that the Israelites, when they were leaving Egypt, Exodus 12, 38 says, or 38, says that a mixed multitude came out with them. A mixed multitude. A, a, A large group, many groups of many ethnicities came out with the Israelites, and some of them were black African. This is Africa, after all. Some of them are black African. And we know that because Moses seems to have married one of them, We're told in Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, that Moses married a woman who was from the same exact country, the same exact people, as where this person is in Acts 8 from. She was a Nubian. She was a black African. Moses married a black African, which means that Moses' kids, his children, and their descendants would be half black African. So I just want you to catch this: that from the very beginning, when there is a people of God that's being identified, as people are, 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 are as people are being brought together as the kingdom of God, a significant number of them are half African, half Black African, even. And so you have this then this multitude that's described, where everything is heading, is described in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter seven, verse nine. Everything's heading to this. It says, a great multitude of people from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language were together standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's the new humanity that's going to be risen from the dead, created as the kingdom of God on earth. Everything is heading toward then. It reminds us of that promises, promise to Abraham, through your offspring, all nations on earth are going to be blessed. It's always been this vision of this multicultural, multi-ethnic people that comprise the kingdom of God. We see it historically, we see it demographically, and we see it biblically, which is why the the black uh, Anglican pastor named Esau McCauley in his book, Reading While Black, He he sums up the gospel this way. Now just just listen to this. Try try to catch this. This is really a great, great sentence. He says, The vision of the kingdom is incomplete without black and brown persons worshiping alongside white persons as part of the one kingdom under the rule of the one king. This is the gospel. I'm going to read it again. The vision of the kingdom is incomplete without black and brown persons worshiping alongside white persons as part of one kingdom under the rule of one king. So when, when Philip is using Isaiah 53 to explain, using that passage to explain the, 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 this idea of the good news about Jesus, that good news about Jesus, that offspring of Abraham has always been about that, about this multicultural, multi-ethnic kingdom of God worshiping side by side under one king. See, here's the, par- the paradox. Here's the irony, is that the most inclusive faith on the planet is also the most exclusive in its claim. Because his claim is really about one person. Remember what it says in Acts, this is what Luke says in Acts 8.35, then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told told them the good news about Jesus. Not the good news about how to have peace in life. Not the good news about how to save your marriage. Not the good news about how to be joyful and have good friends. All these things are important. Nobody's minimizing any of those. That's just not the message of Christianity. It's a result in many ways. It's not the message. It's not the good news. The good news is about one person, and that's Jesus. One person. And that's about the person that God promised Abraham through whom all the nations on earth, all the ethnicities on earth, would be blessed people, a multitude from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, from every language being this kingdom of God. That's the good news. It's about Jesus. And so the passage, when it says he began with that very passage, if we go, he, remember he went through uh, uh, um, Isaiah 53, 7. If we read Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, the two verses right before it, no doubt he would have covered this. This was written 700 years before the crucifixion of Jesus, but notice it's describing the crucifixion of Jesus. 700 years before he was born. The prophet Isaiah writes, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Crucified on the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what I really want you to catch. This is what the Ethiopian caught it's it's not about your ethnicity, it's not about your religion, it's not about your past the things that make you feel separate from God, the things that make you feel distant from God, the things that make you feel guilty when you're around good people that are Christian believers, the things that make you feel other than those who belong. It's it's not about any of those things. All those things have been laid on Jesus. It's about where you are with Jesus. See, because if you have Jesus, then you belong here with his people because Jesus is this is the Jesus people. If you have Jesus, you belong in this story. If you have Jesus, you belong in this bigger story that is told from the very beginning, 4,000 years ago, through your offspring, through this Jesus, the one who's going to be pierced for our transgressions and all our iniquities laid on him, through him, all the nations on earth are going to be blessed this people from every nation, every tribe, every language are going to be the kingdom of God and worshiping together, black and brown and white people worshiping together. If you have Jesus, you belong here and we belong together because together we belong to Jesus. Amen.